0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Navina Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina and thank you so much for being here. Man, this has been a bit of a crazy time. At the time of me recording this, it is April 20th, 2020, and we are definitely all in the middle of the COVID-19 stuff. So it's a little bit crazy, and I'm sure most of you guys are probably at home all quarantined or uh, forced to be home, depending on how your government's treating things. But I hope everyone's keeping safe, and hopefully you're using this time to work on some new music and to practice your audio skills and just create new art. And hopefully once we're all on the other side of this thing, We will have a whole lot of new music out there, and uh, I think it's going to be very interesting. I think a lot of musicians are cooped up at home right now and and, and using this time to be creative, so it'll be really cool to see what comes out on the other side. But enough about that, let's jump into today's episode. Today's episode is an interview with a great producer and engineer. His name is Matt Allison. He's worked with some great punk rock bands like Alkaline Trio, the Menzingers, Less and Jake, the Lawrence Arms, and a whole bunch more, and we have a really cool talk today. He's a really chill dude, really cool guy, and I love his approach to recording and just keeping things very natural, and I think that he gives some really cool insight into his whole process and what he does to make sure that records sound like it's a live band, and so that you capture the proper energy from the band, and so that you make sure that the records don't sound like they've been overproduced. We also get into some cool discussion about guitar tones and how he sets all those up and what some of his go-to mics are and all sorts of stuff. So I think you're going to find this episode really helpful and really fun. And let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into it. Matt Allison, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing?
1: I am doing wonderfully. Thank you for having me.
0: Amazing. So for people who might not necessarily know your background, can you give us a little bit of that story on who you are, what you do, and how you got into all of this stuff in the production world?
1: Sure. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I uh, started up a studio called Atlas, Back in 1995, and for it was open for about 23 years, and we recorded predominantly rock, punk, rock guitar, guitar music, guitar bands, almost almost exclusively, actually. And it was a lot of fun to run a commercial studio, but uh, also a lot of work. So I now work out of, uh, my home studio, which is set up. I use it mostly for mixing and, but I do have an overdub room set up here. I don't cut drums here, but I do have an overdub room here for doing vocals and, uh, electric guitars, acoustic guitars, and that, that type of thing.
0: And so with the commercial, with the move from commercial studio to home studio setup, what was it about the commercial studio side of it that made you decide to switch.
1: Yeah. You know, running a studios, as I'm sure you know, or, or you've heard is a lot of work and it's a labor of love, of course, but financially it's, it's, it can be pretty stressful. Uh, unless you own your own building, I think that makes it a little bit easier. Now I was fortunate enough to have a really good landlord and extremely long 10 year commercial leases, which make, which made things a lot easier but still, it was mostly the, the just the sort of stress of uh, running a business that started to impede on the artistic end of things. Uh, the reason that I got into recording in the first place, which was for music and for art, and uh, I didn't want to, I just kind of wanted to get back to more of that. I found myself getting too far into the business end of things and thinking too much like that, and I wanted to bring it back more more to where uh, it was about what I, the reasons I got into it, which was, like I say, for music and art.
0: Even if you're running a, a mixing business or whatever out of your home studio, you're still going to have to have some of that business side to it. So what have you found that is different?
1: The main difference is I don't have to pay a, a ginormous sum of rent every month. That is, that's been, That's been great because being able to work out of my home allows me to just basically not sweat about money as much it really is the deal there and um, since I' built a pretty good mixing room here i I also am completely comfortable working here as well so I, I, the advantage uh, that i that's come about obviously in the past few years is mixing in a in a computer is become so much easier and more efficient and I don't have to have a ginormous amount of gear uh, somehow moved into my house to to do it. I don't have to have a huge console or uh, racks full of gear and things like that. So the the simplification of everything has is, is been a real positive, truthfully, because it allows you to just concentrate on what's coming out of the speakers.
0: For sure. And I, I imagine even, you know, these days, too, with quarantines and all that stuff and, like, businesses being forced to shut down, like, having a home studio is way more advantageous, right? Because there's a lot of people who yeah. have commercial rent that are just totally screwed right now because of that.
1: I rent. can't even imagine what it's like for them. It's, it's for anyone that doesn't actually own their building, actually for anybody that, even for the folks that own their building, it's got to be... Uh, massively stressful because I would imagine they still have a mortgage as well, and yeah, it's uh, it's very fortuitous that that I'm able to just continue working here from home. It's difficult to imagine what it would be like without that.
0: So, when did you first start mixing? Like, what got you into it in the first place?
1: Yeah, when I was a kid, um, I played. Uh, I was a guitar player and I had bands and when I was a kid in school and um, in high school was when I first got into recording because, uh, I think it was, we just basically it, it, like so many other folks, I think, um, we wanted to make a demo and, um, we got a, I bought one of the little, uh, at the time they were cassette four tracks and recorded our band and sort of learned the, the art of, uh, recording, trying to get more than four tracks onto a four track which meant that you had to get pretty good at bouncing and mixing things um sort of on the fly in a lot of ways
0: yeah and committing
1: yes a lot of commitment going on there and um and when and when we started out doing that it was always our sort of mantra was that uh well if the beatles could do it on four track then we should be able to figure out a way to do it too so (laughs) that was that was kind of how we justified it
0: yeah pretty fair yeah, it's it's amazing if you ever get the chance to look at some of those old Beatles four tracks and you see like how they broke things down in the tracks it's it's, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a whole art unto itself getting you know, say 12 instruments onto a four track. It, it requires it it really makes your brain work and it, and I think it's it, it also comes in really handy I think later on because it you naturally know how things are going to perhaps fit later on down the line in the process so it was a really cool way to learn
0: so how did you start to learn about recording then did you just kind of do it all on your own did you ever that have an was internship it. yeah
1: or? i just um it was really a trial by error kind of thing where we had some mics and we had instruments and we just plugged in plugged in the mics and 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 did it and and, and you know and learned as we as we went along and there was no real pressure i grew up in um there was no real pressure to get anything done fast so we had a lot of time to to experiment i grew up in rockford illinois which is about 90 miles west of chicago and it was a pretty laid back town and no music industry pressure there so we uh we plenty of time to kill usually and we we spent our uh, we spent a lot of our spare time just Figure out how to make music, how to record music.
0: It's interesting to hear that you said you were a guitar player and that you focused primarily on recording guitar-based bands. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's not really a surprise to me in a way. Like I, I one of the things that I really admire about your recordings is the tone of your guitars. And I feel like that's probably just a natural thing because of, you know, your fascination with the instrument. You're probably fo- pretty detail focused when it comes to guitars, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I know what you mean. I imagine that is exactly why because I've always I thought I've had that same thought about some of the uh some of the people that I admire that are, for example, drummers that have become producers and engineers like Butch Vig and Bill Stevenson who get like smoke and whip ass drum sounds as well. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I think um if you learn on an instrument and then you go and then you go and you end up being an engineer, a producer, or mixer there's a certain amount of, uh, sort of built in knowledge that you've had from the years of tinkering with, uh, with guitar amps, for example, you know, playing, playing through all sorts of different amps.
0: Do you have any tips for recording guitar tones and dialing in settings or is just, is every project different?
1: Every project is different, but you know, I've, I've come to, um, I mean, I would say I have a, you know, there's, there's definitely things that I prefer. I, uh, And then they're generally, I would say, relatively standard. I, I, this mic that I'm speaking into right now, an SM7, I use, and generally I use it instead of a, in in the place of a 57, regular uh, SM57. They're very similar mics. I ended up liking the SM7 a little bit more because in the style of music I do, I have to record record a lot of uh, 412 uh, speaker cabinets. And I've found that the pattern on an SM7 is is just a little bit wider. I feel like it's not quite as tight as an SM7. So I, th- I, I feel like the, the off-axis sound that I get from an SM7 on a 412 cabinet is a little bit more pleasant. And then I'll also additionally use the same mics that most everyone else does. If I'm adding extra mics, I'll use a, a Royer 121, and um, I've also been enjoying adding in um, sort of just a random Omni mic on the cabinet as well lately. And then if possible, if I'm in a good room, it's it's also advantageous to, to record the room as well.
0: You're just doing all live amps now. You're not quite into the Kemper amp sim realm yet. You know, I always take a DI
1: now because uh, I think amp sims are mind-bogglingly amazing they've come so far so fast the ones that i myself personally use a lot i've used i don't I've, i haven't used the Kemper yet i have friends that use them and love them um i've, I've used a few of the nimbrini i believe is the is the fellow that does the amp sims i use his uh soldano and uh, mesa sims and the pliny i'm trying to remember the uh it's a newer one Archetype plenty. I just uh demoed that recently and I thought that was fantastic. So we always take always take a DI and I use AMP SIMS a ton because what they can often be handy for is uh supplementing a tone that you've gotten live, creating something a little interesting by sometimes moving the angling the panning the sim to one side and the and the live mic to the other to create a little bit more stereo depth out of a single guitar track that comes in pretty handy. So it's a good time to be recording guitars. We have so many awesome tools to use.
0: For sure. When it comes to live amps, are there any go-to setups that you typically like to use for that?
1: Yeah, I'm, I am I love the Soldano amps, big fan of those. When we we were just at Sonic Ranch down in Texas in January, Recording a new Lawrence Arms album, and I got to use some pretty, pretty cool uh, boutique amps there. But uh, there's Soldano; they, they had an SLO, I think it was SLO 100, or was it a 50? I'm not, I'm not, either way, that that I'm always happy with those amps. Um, oddly enough, I well, I actually, I tend to to sort of lean towards the more um, boutique um, American high gain amps um i'm not a tremendous fan of marshall just because i'm not uh the uh, although i like their 800s but a lot of the marshals the uh I've, I've generally had issues with some of the tone controls being just a little too unwieldy for me um so i feel like the newer high gain amps uh, you can get a little bit more You can get things dialed in, I feel like, a little bit more specifically, as opposed to something like... With a Marshall, you're generally going to get pretty much just that sound. So there's not as much versatility, I feel like, with some of the newer, higher-gain amps, boutique amps.
0: When it comes to recording bands, do you typically... like Where do you start with guitars? Do you just typically tell the guitar player, like dial in whatever settings you would normally start with and we'll, we'll tweak from there? Or do you usually have a vision for where, where you want it to be and what your kind of default startup settings are?
1: For the stuff that I actually record, I, I always get the guitar sounds myself. The guitar players are cool with me doing that. And the way that we, we do it is, before I set up the amps or whatever, I'll just say, I'll ask them what they're looking for, what kind of vibe they're looking for, and, and sort of a general idea, of uh, what they're looking for, and then they'll tell me, and then I'll sort of interpret that in my head and go to the amp and, and dial something in. Well, I'll have them play while I'm dialing it in, and we'll we'll go from there. And that that's kind of how we do it.
0: Well, one record that I was really curious to hear a little bit more insight about was the Lesson Jake record that you made with those guys, and I know that the goal with that record was to kind of throw it back to their older sound and and I feel like guitar tone wise when I listen to their records and their old music versus kind of the stuff that was right before what you worked on there definitely was a big difference in guitar tone and I think that with the record you did, like you totally nailed that older sound and, and got it. So I'm curious, like what was the pro, what was the approach like with that record? And were you guys listening back to the old records and trying to match tones or was there anything else you guys did to create that old nostalgic feel on that record?
1: Well, I'll tell you that record was really interesting because that was the first album that I did on pro tools. Hmm. And yeah, cause I was a late adopter to pro tools as far as actually, recording to it um i generally just prior to that i had been working still working a lot on two inch 24 track and the get together that i had with the band prior to doing the record they were like we we want and uh need to do this on pro tools that's how our our workflow functions so what i was very fortunate to have was uh their bass player roger is uh a brilliant musician on just about any instrument you can put in front of him, and he's also a brilliant engineer and producer. So Roger was my 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 fellow traveler on the making of that record, and helped me a ton uh, learning the sort of like tricks, the insider tricks to to working Pro Tools because he they had they had recorded some major label albums with some heavy hitters prior to that, um, and then as far as the sounds on that record goes. I think the band definitely wanted to. I think the main reason they they record with me is they wanted to have a, a, a more of a straightforward punk rock band sound. So guitars, we had a really cool setup. Roger had a great selection of amps for us to choose from, and it was a once again it was a similar thing where the, the guys would uh, they would play and uh, we would tweak. As they played, so they they gave they, guitar wise on that record they they were they were pretty cool with you know giving me giving me freedom on that they 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 let me do if I remember correctly they they were cool with letting me do uh, let me try what I wanted to try.
0: That's awesome. It's it's really interesting to hear you say that that was your first Pro Tools record because I think that there's so many people especially who are new to engineering and doing the home studio thing and maybe trying to work with bands. Like there's a lot of people who just don't have that confidence in like, you know, if I don't know how to use this software properly, I'm going to like, am I going to embarrass myself in front of my clients and that kind of thing? And maybe they would shy away from a project because of that. But it's interesting to hear you just be like, yep, yeah, I did it. Like,
1: <laughs> you know, well, I still embarrassed myself a few times during the making but Don't get me wrong on that. There were, there were, there were a number of times where, uh, <laughs> Uh, there were definitely a couple of times where their drummer was like, as you know was like does he have it yet is he got, you know, is he is he ready but in general i you know I tried to learn as much as I could just via editing and whatnot um and the and the operational aspects of it prior to them coming in i I got it uh I got a copy of it, put it on my laptop, and just sort of practiced but but uh having having Roger there to guide me during the making of the record was the was the big step up there learned a ton.
0: But I guess it also goes to show too that, you know, there's when it comes to recording, there's almost two two sides of it, right? There's the there's the actual engineering process of getting the tones, getting the mics, everything set up, understanding all that sound, and then there's like the aspect of just running the DAW. And so you know, right. one is one is a little bit more important to the final result than the other, you know?
1: Yeah, I think the 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 main benefit that I had as far as that goes, being able to pull it off, was. Besides, besides obviously having Roger there, it was just the fact that I had been recording for long enough that you learn how to uh, do things by the seat of your pants. Sometimes in a recording session, you kind of have to. You have to be able to adapt very quickly to different situations. And I had been doing it long enough that I that I trusted myself to be able to to do that. So it worked out pretty well.
0: Well, and speaking of adapting, like that was kind of one of the first records you had done that was a a ska band, right? So, you know, how how did the introduction of new elements like horns and all that kind of stuff come into, like, how did that impact the project?
1: Yeah, it was was interesting because, let's see, that record was done, I want to say, in 2008, I think. And it had probably been about 10 years since I had done a ska band. And the ones that I had done prior to that were very fast, sort of, Almost like demos or something, where a where a, where a band would come in and um, do things really quickly. Uh, I had recorded horns before, uh, so that wasn't too difficult. Um, we actually ended up doing some cool things on that record. We we spent some time a being uh, ribbon mics uh, for their horns on that one. We ended up using the Royer one twenty ones for their horns. Uh, but we, at the time, I also had a, a pair of uh, Cascade Fatheads that I'd gotten right around the same time, and we, everyone, myself and the band included, were were pretty impressed by by how incredibly close the Cascades were compared to the Royers as far as uh, getting our horn sounds. It was the type of thing that you had to really listen hard to To notice the differences. So, if there's folks out there that have the Cascade ribbons, because I know they're very affordable, um, that's a good microphone. Get a lot of cool stuff done with those.
0: Were they the ones that have the transformer in them?
1: You know, they weren't. They were the cheapest ones. They were the the the, the really really inexpensive ones. Uh, I have used the ones with the the transformer, and and those are fantastic as well.
0: Interesting. I'll have, to, I'll have to give them a shot. One of the places I work out of, they've got both sets there, and and uh, I've only been using the transformer one so far. But I'm I'm curious to dig into the other ones now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great deal, great value there.
0: You kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier um, when talking about the lesson Jake record, but. You know, you produce a lot of bands in the punk genre, and when you listen to a lot of modern punk and pop punk stuff, everything seems to be almost, like, hyper-edited, super-sampled, super-clean, super-tight. Like, it, it's, it feels kind of you know, sometimes it can feel very sterile. But when I listen to your records, one thing that stands out to me is that there's a rawness to them. And I think that that rawness really contributes to a lot of the energy of your records. So how important is it to you to capture that raw feel of the band and, and just get that natural sound and not get super detail focused with like over-editing or over-production stuff?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I think that comes from the records that I listened to when I when I was a like a, well, pretty much probably. And I started getting into music when I was in elementary school. And the music that that I got into pretty quickly when I was younger was what would now be called classic rock. It would would be stuff from the 60s and the 70s that was generally recorded, often very live-like, or at least with a fair amount of the band playing together. And I think there's a lot of magic that happens with with musicians playing in a room together with with well rehearsed songs that is difficult to try to conjure up um off of a off of a grid sometimes. So I like that uh I like that human element. I think I think it's super important. I think it's a, I, I think the, I think uh listener responds to that a lot. Um, there's definitely a, a tendency since we have the tools to do it, excuse me, for folks to uh, perhaps over tweak some stuff to the point where it almost sounds like it's, it's as much for a car commercial as it is for a, music listener uh and i think about that a lot and i think part of that is the is probably some of that is is the residue from the music industry as it existed up until recently which was the the sort of pro gear pro attitude um thing where the average band's intent was to uh impress a bigwig major label person and that would be their ticket to stardom and that was the only that was the only way to the only entry point into into that now that's completely different now because uh music is very democratized much more democratized at least than than it once was anyone can get their music uh distributed it, everyone can get their music on Spotify and all the streaming services so i think as time moves on i think people I, I think eventually you're gonna see a little bit more of a return to more adventurous shall we say more humanistic stuff um and i think the 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 sterility sterile music is 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 definitely a kind of a can be a problem i mean i think people have a tendency to tune it out a lot faster if uh if it doesn't If it doesn't really uh, connect with them on on an emotional level.
0: And I wonder too, if like, you know, especially now with all this COVID-19 stuff going on and there seems to be a lot more musicians just trying home recording. And I wonder if that will also be a contributing factor to people going back to more of a raw sound because you're not going to have all of these stu- all of these bands going to a studio where they're going to have an engineer manipulate everything and edit it super tight to the grid and all that. Now you're getting a lot of people who are just trying it for themselves and maybe aren't, you know, really getting deep into the editing side of things. And they're just recording it because it sounds good to them, you know? So maybe we'll start to see a lot more of that raw feel.
1: I think you're exactly right. That is absolutely what is going to happen and is happening right now. I think it's a good thing and I'm all for that. Love to see more of that.
0: So you had mentioned bands playing in the same room. Do you do all of your recordings kind of live off the floor?
1: Anytime you can do that, it's great to do it. So generally what happens is that's set up so that all the guys are in the room together and and everybody's mic'd up as if they were cutting something live. And then you you keep as much as you can, generally speaking, it's if you can the more the more I feel like the more you can keep from uh from the take that is done with the band playing together, a lot of times the, the better I th- it's, uh, so like I was saying before, there's a certain, certain kind of gelling that, uh, that, that occurs there.
0: So then do you focus a lot on pre-production before a band comes into the studio with you?
1: Yeah. I mean, the much, as much as possible, I think it's been really easy for the pro tools, all DAWs to serve as, I don't want to call it a crutch, but, it, to some extent, it has been a little bit of that. So, there they can tend to be much more of a "we'll fix it later" sort of mentality. Um, I think, but I personally still believe that the the more the more rehearsal that happens, the better. Um, I, I, I just I personally feel like the best records that are made are, or at least I should say that the best records are more easily made. That way, I think, if the if the band is super well rehearsed,
0: so then how involved do you like to get in producing an album? Do you get really involved in the songwriting? Is it more kind of arrangement and tempo stuff, or like what what do you see as your role as the producer?
1: Yeah, it's it changes for every. It's it's always different. Um, for for bands that have been around a while, they're usually pretty pretty adept at knowing where they're their sweet spots are and what they can do and what they can't do. So on that, when you have situations like that, the my end of the uh, end of the contributions are generally going to be kept to uh, things like the tempo, um, whether or not the key, whether or not the song is being played in a key that is a good key for the singer. And, uh, and then just the um, s- song arrangement and whether or not there's any, uh, superfluous sections of the song that might be able to be chopped or not, but generally the 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 the, the more experienced band, like if there's a band that I, that I'm working with that's already done a number of albums, you know that they're pretty good at knowing exactly what works. You know, it's like they they can they can say that uh, this isn't our first rodeo. We know we we've, we've learned a lot. So, and in that case, you know, you just you function as just. As an extra ear and as uh, an extra opinion to help in whatever way uh, they might ask you to help.
0: Yeah. And in terms of being the extra opinion, you know, there's, I feel like there's two schools of thought when it comes to producers. There's the producers who are like, I'm the producer, so my my opinion weighs heavier than everyone else's. And then there is more of like the, you know, the additional member of the band kind of thing. How do you generally approach your productions? With
1: that as someone that started out as a musician in in a band, I much more uh, come from f- come from that that aspect of it. I, I, I don't want to, I, I I can't be a draconian person where I say my my way or the highway. Um, it's not not really my thing, and plus it's not my record either. It's it's the band's record. That the idea is 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 for for them to you know make a good record. People aren't buying the record because my face is on it they're buying it because of the the band's the it's the band's album so yeah I just try to be I just try to be uh helpful with it
0: so when you when a band approaches you to record with them what do you think it is about you in particular that they're gravitating towards and and that they're ultimately choosing you for
1: you know the only thing I can guess honestly it was is that they probably enjoy something I've done previously um which is I'm I, I think that's probably how most of it works there's also of course the uh, the, um, comfortable, comfortable, the aspect of being comfortable with other folks, you know, you might be friends with folks prior to that. And it's a personality thing where you get along really well. Um, I think having, I think sharing similar musical tastes and often just sort of like even sharing similar senses of humor are, are, uh, an important aspect for, for doing a record. You have to be you have to be compatible. It's like any other relationship. It's like if you're you know, if the if a band is gonna bring in an extra member, um, they want they want everything to be compatible there as far as how they work and how they think and their sense of humor and and everything. You know, you you're you're a temporary member of the band there for for a number of weeks. So you have to fit in like that.
0: I think that that's a really important point that a lot of people gloss over is you know having that relationship aspect and and how important that really is to a band deciding to to pick their producer. So ahead of time, do you typically do you typically meet with the band ahead of time and kind of suss out that relationship or is it the all exercise. like referrals at this point? So that you, so most people kind of know you.
1: It's about half of my work now, at least I would say at least half now is just mixing. But yeah, when I do do production work it's for the most part it's almost always folks that i've met before hung out with before or uh done a record with before it's been quite a few years since i've actually walked into a studio blind and having never met the band that uh is that uh, yeah i'm not sure if i can remember the last time that happened generally like to meet the folks before him
0: and i'm assuming most bands will send you some demos ahead of time or
1: yeah i think demos are always a good idea even if they're even if they have a hard time recording them and they don't think they sound good or they're and even if that is the case and they don't sound good and i don't necessarily i'm not necessarily able to derive much from the demo or whatever the process of the band demoing is important because of what it does is it forces them to actually get their ideas down Uh, on a medium that allows them to then go back later and listen to it because no matter what, uh, they'll be listening to their demos and hearing things slightly different than they will be at the moment that they're playing them. Things will feel different. They'll shift from being a musician into a listener. And that's sort of a necessary thing for them to do in order to get the extra perspective on their on their music
0: it's a great point it's, it's almost like a a pre pre-production in a way yeah
1: yep it
0: is so many bands don't listen to each other when they're rehearsing because they've just got their amps cranked to 10 and, and they can't hear each other right
1: <laughs> yeah that's a big one i've heard that one i still hear that one a fair fair amount where you'll be in the studio and someone will play something and and you'll hear someone else go oh i never knew you were doing that so <laughs> it's great to get that stuff ironed out a little bit prior to the record if possible.
0: So then in your opinion, what makes a, gr- a great song? Like, what are you listening for when a band sends you those demos and you know, how, what, what's your goal with those songs?
1: Well, I don't know if I have a goal with songs as far as the, the, the once again, it has to be the artist. It's you know, the it's, it's artist vision. It's their record. But as far as what I personally enjoy, I'm a fan of, I, I love melody. So I, I think that's an, uh, an important part of it. Um, and, lyrically, I think it's important to be lyrically expressing yourself in a way that uh, conveys the message that you're trying to speak across to the listener. I don't think I've ever gotten involved in lyrics, however, because that's that's a very personal thing. Uh, but The closest I'll get to that would be if someone's having issues um, during the singing process as far as fitting the you know, say the amount of syllables into the melody that they're working with, and you can sort of help them edit things down to, to make that easier. But generally, the lyrical process is something you're going to leave up to the artist.
0: So then what would be some of the common mistakes you see most artists making before they come to the studio?
1: I think number one for sure is the one we were just talking about in terms of rehearsal. That is a tricky, that's one that is just so important. And I wish nowadays... I I, I, I it used to be that a band could go out and uh, woodshed their songs before audiences on, say, uh, on a tour. And I think they still can, but I've I've had bands tell me that they are concerned that um, their songs will then leak out on YouTube prior to to uh, the release of the album. They don't want that to happen. They want it to be a completely fresh thing. And I understand them thinking that, but on the other hand, I also think there's uh, so much feedback you can get by by working out songs in front of an audience prior to going into a studio to record them. You can see what works and what doesn't work uh as you're playing them live at, uh you you can the audience reaction of course, the feedback from the audience uh there's a lot of valuable a lot of valuable knowledge you can gain by going out and doing a tour or doing gigs where you're trying out your new songs and seeing just sort of feeling them in the moment with other people in the room.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny again, going back to the, um, like the COVID stuff, I was listening to a interview with, um, a good friend of mine who's a a songwriter and he, he focuses mainly on like EDM stuff, but he was talking about that same idea of, you know, typically a lot of artists will go play their songs live, test things out, feel out the crowd, that kind of stuff. But now people are forced to stay home and they don't have that outlet to to try things. So yeah, it, it's also interesting because maybe you'll start to get people who are making more songs that f- like just from the heart, you know, as opposed to like that idea right. of like, well, what are people reacting to, you know?
1: Yeah. That's a super good point because we don't know when live music is now going to return. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've seen some, some kind of scary estimates as far as that goes, where, where, it could be well into 2021 before going back to shows and concerts is anywhere close to what it was like prior to the, to the pandemic. So that puts a whole new spin on things. And truthfully, we just were sort of in a, a limbo right now. We don't really know how, how this is going to all shake out, but I agree there it'd be, it'd be awesome if some of the songwriting benefits from uh from the, uh, isolation and introspection that a lot of folks are, are experiencing right now.
0: It might, it might actually end up creating a lot of great songwriters too, because, you know, the bands that play those cover song, like cover bands and all that kind of stuff, they, they're not playing that as much right now. So, you know, maybe they're going to flex their musical muscles and start writing their own songs and, you know, be prepared on the other side to release their own music. Yeah. That could happen. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. It's very interesting times. (laughs) I'd love to shift a little bit to mixing as well. Cause I know you do some of that too. I was wondering like, what's your mindset when you start a mix? Like where do you start? How do you start? What's your typical process look like there? I
1: think it's a good idea to, to sort of have uh, a plan in mind. Uh, when you're, when you're about to set out doing a mix, I think you, um, if you're, if you're working with something that someone else has sent to you, uh, it's a good idea to just throw up the faders and see what's there, or if, they, or if there's a rough mix, you need to listen to that first to see just what you're, what you're dealing with. You know what the song is. Try to get a feel for what the for what the uh, intention is. Um, so having a plan is is a sort of plan of action is a good thing, and then from that point, uh, generally. I will I j I will start with the drums uh purely because uh it's a gain structure sort of situation that uh the usually the the the, well, the peakiest, most transient heavy stuff is gonna be from the drums, of course, and in terms of getting um a nice um uh moderate, healthy level that uh won't want that the master, so that the mastering engineer doesn't want to come find you and kill you. Um, <laughs> I, I'll start with the drums because if you can get uh, if you can get the gain structure to work in a in a nice comfortable place with those, everything else can usually get its, find its, you know, find its way into the mix pretty easily.
0: Yeah. Do you typically shoot for a certain level on your meters or like, is that?
1: I'm generally going with a, I, I like to play it pretty, there's a lot of, I'd like to play it pretty, you know, pretty safe in this, in the sense of that, because with the, the amount of uh dynamic range and headroom that we have these days, uh there, there's no need to to abuse the meters. So I, yeah, I usually uh, go with a um, zero view equals negative 18 sort of scenario. And I keep things, I try at least to keep things pretty pretty chilled out.
0: Yeah. And then in your opinion, what ultimately makes a great mix once you've started? What makes a great
1: mix once you've started? I would say that, uh, well, ideally, the, the, ideally, what you would want, in my opinion, would be for would be for the listener not to be thinking about the process at all not to be thinking about um technical aspects of it but to completely become immersed in the in the music you know because the best kind of music is the transcendental kind that can just sort of literally transport you someplace else for 3 minutes so that that's that you want if you can get uh if you can get someone completely lost in the in the listening aspect of music for, of a song, then, then I absolutely consider that to be a great mix right there.
0: Yeah. So then how do you know when you're done it? How do I know when, just when you're done with a mix? Cause also, I'm, I'm assuming like, once you feel like you've hit all those markers, that's probably when you're done, right?
1: Yeah. It's, you know, there's that old saying that, um, art is never finished. It's merely abandoned. Um, and that same thing can go for mixing because you can, you can tweak endlessly. Um it it's all depends on <clears throat> excuse me. how far how uh how tight you're going in with the microscope or the magnifying glass, you know, whether you're zoomed out getting the macro view or especially when you have a daw, you can zoom in and get down to the most minute details of stuff that quite honestly, you'll probably forget about six months later. Uh, so really it, it's, it's, it, it's, 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 it's a feel thing, generally speaking, you know, it's a, and if you're working on a deadline that often will accelerate things, <laughs> but uh, in a perfect, in the perfect scenario, it's a, it's just basically a feeling where you're like, I love this and I don't want to touch it anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how long do you feel like it normally takes you to finish your mixes then?
1: I love having, um, a good, healthy amount of time to sort of like ruminate on, on a, on a mix just simply because I, I really enjoy the process so much. Um, that's to say like, I could probably get something that's really good in the, in, in this time span of three hours, but I, I generally enjoy trying to, uh, I, like, if possible, I like to spend about one one working day per song on a,
0: on a mix. Do you ever put, like, time constraints on yourself just to challenge yourself with it, or is it just more like, you know...
1: I've been doing it a long time, so I, I've, you know, I used to do live sound where I had to do it immediately, so I, I've had those time constraints before. So anytime I can have uh, a more relaxed amount of time to get to do a mix, I'm happy with it, because... It's it's uh like I say it's it to me it's it, it's very much like it's like you're putting together some people think of it as putting together a jigsaw puzzle and I get that because it is uh, but also it's also like doing a painting where you're 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 utilizing different colors and blending them together to to create something new so I I like to uh, I like to sort of savor it and enjoy the process
0: and, and it's interesting to hear you say talk about the live the live sound stuff and having to do it you know all in real time and I, I find that people who have that kind of background that then get into mixing, they, they tend to just work faster naturally because they're used to it. You know, like it, yeah. when you are live mixing, you have no choice. You have to just learn to accept things and commit to it and own it, you know?
1: Yeah, that's exactly true. And that, and it's something that I I can do and probably can do a decent job of. And i and have actually had to do, I mean, I've mixed albums, entire albums before in one day, um, it's just not as much fun to do it that way though. I mean, I enjoy, like, I enjoy the, there's a lot of experimentation you can do when mixing and I, and and different, you know, different paths you can go down to, to try different things. So it's a really artistic process. So I, I try to enjoy, I try to enjoy it as much as possible.
0: For sure. And speaking of that experimentation, how do you typically go about approaching those creative moves in mixing? Like, do you, is it something that, you know when you when you have an idea, you just go for it, or do you try to you know maybe make a couple different versions, one with the effects, one without, or that kind of thing, and let the band make up their mind in terms of what they like?
1: Yeah, I'll almost always uh, like I'll always like if I if I feel pretty confident that they'll that they'll like it, I will try something, and then put in a note with the mix saying, I tried this thing in this spot. Let me know what you think. If, uh, if it doesn't work, it's no sweat at all. I can easily take it off or revert back to the, the different, the different, uh, you know, a, a different thing, you know, um, it's always just fun just to experiment. And I always make it very clear that it's not a problem at all. If, if it's something that,
0: that, uh, doesn't suit their tastes, you know, different strokes for everybody when it comes to that. Do you find that you're mixing a lot of the projects that you're producing, or are you getting a lot of mix-only projects at this point?
1: Uh, it's about half and half, I would say, for the most part. It really is, yeah. Um, just pretty much right right, right about it, pretty much a 50-50 split, I would say.
0: And do you find, like, what kind of problems do you frequently see when people submit tracks for mixing?
1: Uh, it's getting better and better all the time, which is awesome, um, because so many more folks are, are learning how to record because everyone can have a recorder in their computer now um but generally speaking uh the 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 main issue is going to be the same thing that's probably the issue with any recording anywhere and that's going to be the environment that the recording was done in the room the acoustics of the room um that is a a major consideration because the room the acoustics of a room are going to show up. I, I always like to refer to it as the the audio fingerprint. Uh, they're going to show up on on every recording. So optimizing the the acoustics of the room where you're recording your music is is a is a real key thing. That's probably the, one of the and it's probably not thought about a lot by folks that record themselves, but it is. to me, unquestionably, the most important thing.
0: Well, especially when you get the people who record themselves that maybe don't have so much experience with it and their gain structure is out to lunch and, you know, super cranked mic preamps and all that stuff, then you're definitely going to hear that room footprint, as you said, like a lot more, right?
1: Yeah, you are. Um, That's another interesting thing that now that you bring it up too is I noticed that levels are generally cranked uh, probably more than they need to be. And so for the folks that are... The the record themselves. A lot of it, I think, is is. I mean, there's so much to learn when it comes to recording, and I think what they're they're once it's it's generally a ton just to learn about how to run a DAW and learn about microphones and signal flow as it is. But learning um, learning about learning teaching yourself a little bit about about uh, how sound works in a room, the acoustics of a room, and gain structure are definitely should be on the list of things that, uh, folks try to try to teach themselves about.
0: Yeah. And I think that, that idea of people recording really hot signals, I think of that, that sometimes that's, that's kind of an old school way of approaching it. Right. Whereas like, you know, definitely. with tape, it was like, get it as loud as you can without clipping and you're good. right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It took me a while to, to get away from that it, because it is a completely, completely different way of, of thinking in terms of how you're Of how you're uh, gain structuring everything, and how you're stressing, perhaps stressing your electronics is what I try to putting stress on the electronics of your of your um, gears. What I a lot of times will try to stress to the folks that are working from home, and that is that don't uh, don't put your gear under any sort of unneeded duress unless you're doing it deliberately for a specific sound, because you you certainly don't need to do that with all the headroom and dynamic range that you have in a DAW. And sometimes with the cheaper recording gear, the electronics and the parts inside those, those pieces of gear aren't necessarily designed to be abused to the point where they sound good. A lot of times they'll simply just crap out and not sound as good.
0: Well, and sometimes you just have to, you have to learn the hard way, right? Like that's, I think that's how we all learn, right? We yeah. all just experiment until we find out what works, what doesn't. And, and exactly you have to learn the wrong way to do something so that when you do want to do it the wrong, like this quote unquote wrong way and get an effect, then, then you at least know why you're doing it.
1: Yeah. Trial and error this is a a key thing.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we all learn from trial and error and making mistakes in the studio. And, you know, I'd love to know, do do you have any examples of anything that's gone wrong in a session that you've worked on and, you know, a lesson that you've learned from that or like, you know, maybe how you fixed it.
1: Boy. Um, I think I would, I would say once again, getting back to gain structure, I think, um, and not necessarily just with the levels that are going into the DAW, but, levels uh going into a mic pre and levels using um tube outboard gear. Um it is very easy. There's a lot of uh there's a lot of gear outboard gear, whether it's mic pre's or compressors out there that you'll see people use that use tubes and they as cool as they sound, they also distort a hell of a lot faster. So And I sometimes have been like working so fast in the moment that I might not have, I might be, might not have uh, turned something down enough and I'll have come back later and there'll be a little bit more hair on the vocal or whatever, thanks to it hitting the the tube compressor a little hard. And that's, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of distortion that you can't get rid of and you have to live with. So it's, it, it really is, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's, It's my, my thing is always just trying to keep as much of an eye on, on my levels everywhere in the chain as, as much as possible.
0: Yeah. And do you find that you're doing a lot of corrective measures or, um, like using drum samples and that kind of stuff in your mixes or do you, do you keep things pretty natural?
1: I, I will, I will use Jones samples definitely. Uh, but not to the extent that I think you probably hear them on most records because, um, for example, Like, if I were to say this as far as percentage-wise goes, if I'm going to use a sample on something, it'll be like 90% the real sound and then only about maybe 10% of the sample. And it's used more in terms of trying to just create some consistency more than anything else. Um, There are um, some... There's a lot of... uh, To my ear, there's a lot of drum sampling used to the point where to me it just sounds like a drum machine and there's no variance in the dynamics at all and that that's kind of a big turnoff to me personally so i don't like to use samples to any particularly great degree because i think it it just kind of makes stuff sound fake and it also it just sort of homogenous that way too just starts to sound you know just starts to sound all samey and stuff everything starts to sound the same so i try to be very careful if i'm using samples i try to be very careful with with how like to me if you can actually hear it then that's too much so i uh, you know i i if i'm using them i, I try
0: to mix make, make it so that they're not really being heard at all and they're just there sort of for support and are you typically like i like how you put it if you can hear the samples that you've probably gone too far are you Typically, like, are you using sample libraries that you have, or are you making your own samples out of the kits you're recording and using those for that consistency that you had mentioned?
1: Yeah, it can be both. It's really whatever, uh, whatever works for the, for the per- particular scenario. But generally speaking, I think if you can use samples that you've made from the session, I think that's the most natural sounding scenario for me personally. I think that works the best. And generally, I feel like that's also, um, that's it's that's usually enough, just right there, you know, because if you go through your, if you take, for example, if you record uh, a bunch of hits of the drummer at the end of your session or some halfway through the session or whatever, and you get some sounds off his drums, if you have him do some hits and stuff, you're going to find, you're going to find some good ones in there that work perfectly fine for the, for the occasional, like, it, you know, there's going to be times when a drummer is going to maybe not hit his kick as hard as he meant to or not hit his snare as hard as he wanted to. And so what you're going to want to do is take a really nice, pure hit of his own uh, drumstick and his own drum and just put it in there and make it sound seamless. So, yeah, I I would say that I definitely uh, encourage folks to to uh, make their own samples as far as that goes
0: yeah when you add your own samples of the drummer making those clean hits do you do any post-processing before you add them to your sessions or is it all just like the raw sound
1: no it would just be the raw sound so you can sort of so you can process it just like you would the rest of the the rest of the drum kit as you you know it's 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 uh it's It's got to maintain its relation its sort of realistic relationship with with everything else that's going on at that time to me at least
0: no, I think that makes a lot of sense and I think that that is a very good reason for why you wouldn't hear the samples in your recordings, right because if it's the same drum, same tuning, same everything, then they yeah. shouldn't hear it,
1: yeah, the closest I've ever gotten to having a problem with that was when back in the late two thousands we had a this really awesome um in mid mid two thousands, we had this really awesome s- deep Slingerland green snare, and we loved it so much. And got and we used it on like a lot of records. And I remember Vinny from uh, Less Than Jake said when he came in the studio, he saw that drum and we were playing around, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I know that snare drum. I've heard that snare on on your <laughs> records before." Because he had a really awesome collection of uh, of amazing snare drums, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, see now I got I got a great set of." Of, uh, I got a couple of really awesome Brady snares here. So you don't have to use your Slingerland so much now.
0: <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say he was going to buy it off of you or something.
1: <laughs> no, I would have loved to have bought the drums that he had off him. He had an amazing set of, uh, snare drums. Really, really, really
0: cool stuff. So do you find that you end up using a lot of your own gear on projects just because it's familiar or are you letting the bands bring in all their own stuff?
1: Well, back when I had a studio, we'd use a fair amount of my own, but, um, now it's, it's, uh, it's it's generally the kind of thing where you, we via email we just go back and forth and discuss about what we're gonna about what we're gonna use um, when when myself and the Lawrence Arms were down in Texas in January Sonic Ranch has an incredible an incredible list of of gear that is available to the to the bands and uh, what you do is in advance you email them and say you pick out what You would like to use so uh with the guys in the band we we were sort of emailing talking about what we would want to use which guitars we want to reserve which amps we want to reserve and um i did the same thing with the microphones that i wanted to use so it's generally scenarios like that where you, you have a conversation with the guys in the band and sort of come to an agreement about what what they like to play what's comfortable for them to play and what uh what we think sounds good for
0: sure, and um, you'd mentioned the Lawrence Arms and I know that that's one of the more recent projects that you just wrapped up. So I wonder if you could share some insight on the the recording process with that. Yeah, that was
1: a lot of fun. Um, it's located in a town called I, I think it's pronounced Torneo, Texas, and it's about 45 minutes southeast of El Paso. So it's in West Texas and uh, you can see the Mexican border from the studio. Can see the mountains that are in Mexico from there. Um, it's out in the middle of nowhere on a pecan farm, and the folks that work there are wonderful people. Um, they take such good care of you while you're there. They they cooked all our meals for us. They they did our laundry. You know, cleaned our rooms because you live there in your own little hacienda while you're working there. And um, it was a wonderful experience. It was uh, two weeks and they were pretty long days they were always at least uh somewhere you know probably averaged around close to 12 hours a day and every day of the week and which is for an old guy like me that was long but uh they made it much easier just by being so helpful and we had a blast we we hopefully uh well i i hope personally to be able to go back and make a record there again because uh just a super cool artistic place to make a record, and that record comes out in July on Epitaph Records.
0: That's amazing! I'm looking forward to hearing that one. Wicked. Well, I think that that's a great place to wrap up. Um, man, I think you've shared a lot of really good insight into some of the records you've made, and and uh, I love your philosophy on just you know keeping things very simple, straightforward, and you know natural. And, and I think that that's one of the things that makes you as a engineer, as a producer, stand out. Is that you? You still have that raw sound, and in that world of punk rock, there's, you know, there has definitely been a big shift, and it's it's comforting to hear a familiar older sound, you know.
1: <laughs> oh, cool! I'm glad you like it, man. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, it's awesome. For people who might want to follow you online, what's the best way that they can do that?
1: I have a. You can probably find me on Facebook if you want to be my friend on Facebook. Feel free, and I have a Twitter account, which I which is uh, my name. Uh, and I think it's Atlas Chicago, I think is the name. And generally, when if, if, there aren't, if I'm not ranting politically, I'm trying to try to tone that down. Sometimes it's hard, but uh, I try to talk about music and engineering on there as well. So those are the, my two places on social media that I uh, partake in.
0: Well, Matt Allison, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to hearing some of the records that you're making now.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much for having me.
0: So there you go. That was my interview with Matt Allison. And that was a lot of fun. I think it was really fascinating to hear some insights into some of the records that he worked on and to learn a little bit more about his philosophies on capturing guitar tones, getting consistent drums, using drum samples, and just overall capturing the energy of a band in the studio. So I think it was really fascinating. And I also really liked the fact that he was talking about the Less Than Jake record and how he had to just take a chance, take a risk and do a big session without having even used the DAW before and i think that's really cool because it really emphasizes the idea of being an engineer and capturing great sounds and that is the most important part and you know i i just think it's it's a really cool example of just committing and doing it and pushing yourself and learning new things and if you've heard that record you'll know it sounds incredible so he did a great job on it and yeah just definitely check it out i think you'll really enjoy that record So I just want to thank Matt once again for being on the podcast. Thanks, dude. That was a lot of fun. Hopefully we can do it again soon. And uh, for you, the listener, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, make sure to check out the Master Your Mix website. I actually just recently updated it all, so it's a brand new site when you get in there and uh, looking all snazzy and stuff. So definitely make sure to check it out, MasterYourMix.com. And also, if you're new to recording and editing and mixing and you want to learn a little bit more, make sure to sign up for the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It is a free download that I'm offering on the website. So when you visit the site, you'll get a pop-up that comes up Asking if you want to download it enter your email address and you will get a free guide to using eq and compression in your mixes walks you through all the frequencies that you need to pay attention to what settings to dial in with compression and it'll get you up and running real quick with your mixes so that you can start making better mixes faster so definitely make sure to check it out also make sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app so that you don't miss out on any future episodes And if you want to go the extra mile, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review on the Apple Podcast app. That would really help to expose this podcast to more listeners and make people realize that there's a lot of great content inside of this podcast. So uh, that'd be much appreciated. That's it for today's episode, guys. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're keeping safe. And I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.